You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast, the first episode of the second season of the show. I'm your host, AK, and I've got some great things lined up for you right after this. Summer, 1990. A teenage boy in trouble. An evil that only comes out at night. Only a straight-to-VHS movie can save him. From A. Kale, the author of, Beware the Night. Bad Dreams. A thrilling horror novel, now available on Amazon. Rated PG-13, for some thematic elements and mild violence. My guest on this episode is a public high school teacher and author. His columns promoting common sense education reforms have been published in major daily newspapers, including the National Post, the Globe and Mail, and the Vancouver Province. His latest book is A Sage on the Stage, Common Sense Reflections on Teaching and Learning, and he joins me on the show to talk about the future of education, the importance of content knowledge, and his love for the books of C.S. Lewis. Please welcome Michael Zwackstra. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of your writing, and uh, when I came across your work, which was, I think, a month ago, mm-hmm. it was a breath of fresh air to me because much of what I read now, not political writings, but writings that have to do with with writing and freedom of expression and the politics of education to some extent is very underwhelming and maybe even depressing, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, I mean, in the mainstream. Mm. Uh, For someone like myself, who's, who's interested in moving forward and and positivity and uh, and who believes in education and freedom of expression the current state of conversation when it comes to education and reading and writing is really not appealing to me so uh, when i came across uh, your articles and uh, one of your books which which is uh, the sage uh, the sage in the classroom or the sage on the stage uh, it's uh, it, w- it was very it was it w- as I said it was a breath of fresh air so thank you for that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you found my writings to be helpful. What books influenced you the most growing up? Well, there are certainly a lot of books that have influenced me uh, uh, when growing up. I mean, I obviously uh, re- certain classic books have influenced me. The Bible has had a major influence on on me. Uh, the writings of C.S. Lewis, uh, certainly when I was a kid, the Chronicles of Narnia, I enjoyed very much. And then, uh, you know, later as an adult, I've read some of his, uh, uh some of his nonfiction writings. Um, I've, uh, I, I've read a lot of books, uh, I read a lot of books on just science and, and history. And, uh, so there's, uh, there's quite a few. And then as far as, 
in the world of education, uh, the writings of E.D. Hirsch uh, and his, his book, The Schools We Need and Why We Don't Have Them, that had a major impact on me as I was going into education to become a teacher because he, uh, he sort of took apart a lot of the assumptions in the, in the world of education. And uh, I found his writings and the, on the importance of content knowledge made a lot of sense. And so there are certainly a lot of authors over the years that have had a pretty significant influence on me. So what made you want to be an educator? You know, simply put, I like being able to uh, take a subject which is complex, which is challenging, and then breaking it down and making it, making it simple, simpler for students to understand. There's, uh, it's quite exciting to be able to uh, introduce students to a subject that they usually don't know anything about before and seeing them get excited about some of the things in it. So, for example, in a history class, seeing them for the first time learn about major events in Canadian history or U.S. history. And uh, it's, it, so it's just kind of neat being able to do that. And uh, just being able to play a role in shaping students as they, uh, they grow into adulthood and helping them develop their ability to think critically. And uh, it, it, it can be a very rewarding profession. And it's also a very challenging profession. Uh, a lot of people, you know, get into that profession and uh, with very high hopes and with optimism. But the reality crushes them to some extent because I've, I've spoken with a lot of teachers in, in a lot of countries, you know, who teach a lot of different grades. And uh, a lot of them think that the reality now in education, especially if you teach younger students, uh, is not as idealistic as they thought it was, you know, going in. So what do you think of that? I think that's very true. And uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, teaching is a challenging profession. It's often not because of the students per se. It's about all the other stuff that gets imposed on teachers and many of the, the fads that get pushed when they're in the training to become a teacher. And there are a lot of ideas in education that don't work terribly well, that new teachers feel pressure to try and to implement. And so it can be a very challenging profession. There's no question about it. In your first book, uh, What's Wrong With Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them, you talk about the importance of tests and earning your grades and the value of rewarding achievements. Some of these concepts are being challenged today to some extent, aren't they? They are. And the, the challenge to these uh, basic principles isn't new. Uh, there's there's long been a battle in education circles between those who are more traditional, for lack of a better word, such as myself, meaning that I believe there are specific standards and content that all students need to master and learn sequentially, versus those who are more progressive, uh, who, who want to have students basically direct their own learning and do everything via projects and inquiry. And so that battle has been raging for a long time in education circles. And uh, the progressive side uh, has been very dominant in education faculties where teachers have been trained. And so that's why if you're, uh, if you're training to become a teacher, there's a good chance you're hearing a lot about the tests don't really work and that we shouldn't put too much, um, we, we shouldn't have too much focus on specific content and that. And obviously that's a, that's a viewpoint that I disagree with quite strongly, but uh, it, is, it is certainly being pushed a lot in education circles these days.
In your first book and your latest book, A Sage on the Stage, you talk about teacher-centric classrooms and the importance of discipline with students. In your opinion, um, are these qualities lacking in modern classrooms? And if so, why is that the case? Yeah, the, um, I, when, I, when I talk about teacher-centered, you know, some people misunderstand that they think that all, oh, you know, he's just making it all about the teacher. No, because I do believe in making students their focus. But a teacher-centered classroom simply means that the teacher is clearly in charge. The teacher sets the tone and the direction. The teacher decides on the content that's being covered that day and how to cover it and is responsible to monitor to make sure students are learning what they actually need to learn. That's what I mean by having a more teacher-centered classroom and, uh, and that ultimately is beneficial to students. Now, every teacher is different. Not, uh, obviously, there's variations from school to school and even from classroom to classroom. Uh, but yes, I do think that in many cases, we've moved too far away from this, that we, we put this idea of student-centered so far and we go to this extreme that you get this that you get this notion that the teacher should be off to the side. There's the 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 title of my my second book, A Sage on the Stage, is actually a play on words because I'm challenging the common saying that a teacher should be uh, a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage. And I challenge that. I go, no, actually, most of the time the teacher needs to be a sage on the stage. This teacher knows things the student doesn't don't know, students don't know, and has to make sure they actually learn it. And so. In far too many cases, the teacher is off to the side and is trying to get students to rediscover things on their own and doing this inquiry and discovery learning via projects. And while there's a limited role for that sort of thing, the reality is that if you're doing everything by inquiry and everything by discovery, it's not very efficient. There's a whole lot of stuff that you're going to miss. And uh, you lose a lot when you don't have a clear teacher-directed approach. In a recent article you wrote, uh, which, which was how I was introduced to, to your writings, and it's an article I really, really enjoyed, and I actually read it more than once, and I recommend it to, to listeners as a very good introduction to your work and your ideas, and your ideas about education in general. The article is, writing well is becoming a lost art. And in that article, you talk about the importance of content knowledge, a topic I know you are passionate about uh, because you talk about it in all of your writings. Can you explain that concept a little bit? Well, when I talk about content knowledge, um, I simply i am referring to subject-specific information. And, and so, for example... When, when I talk about content knowledge in history, let's say American history, for example, it would mean being familiar with major events and people and places in American history. So content knowledge means you know uh, basic facts about the American Revolution. You know who the, the major revolutionary leaders were. You know the, a little bit of the, uh, uh, the, the historical context. You know about things like the, the Boston Tea Party or the, uh, or the Boston Massacre. You know about uh, people such as George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence. Content knowledge is where you, you have facts in your brain about those kinds of things. And so that way, if I were to hand you an article that's talking about the American Revolution, you would be able to understand that article. 
And the reason you would be able to understand that article isn't just because you can decode the words and say what they are. You actually know what the key phrases and concepts actually are. Because if you don't have that content knowledge, uh, you will struggle to read an article and understand it about the American Revolution. And this applies to any topic anywhere. If you don't know something, some things in, in your brain, in your, in your head, uh, about the topic of the article or book you're reading about, you will struggle when reading it, and there's a good chance you're not going to bother reading it at all. Um, you mean that younger people or young people basically need to have a reference point through education, through knowing certain facts about a specific topic or topics, so that when they get exposed to discussions or articles or books or media about these topics, they need, they need to have certain facts, basic facts about a topic or topics, so that when these young people get exposed to articles or books or media about these topics, they can basically separate the truth from the lies. Absolutely. You need to, if you don't know certain things, if you don't have basic facts about a topic in your brain, you will struggle to understand it. And I, I mean, just even taking a common sense example, let's say that a friend comes to you and says, I need your advice about a problem that, I'm, that I have. The very first thing you would ask your friend is, tell me about the problem. And then after they've given you basic facts, they've told you about the situation, you now, using the basic facts, the information they've given you as a reference point, you can now understand and, and give some reasonable advice. However, you would never say to your friend, don't tell me a word about what your problem is. Let me just guess as to what you're facing and let me use my critical thinking skills in the absence of any information to figure out your problem. No one does that. No one talks that way because we all know that you need to know things about whatever topic it is that you're looking at. If you don't know certain things about it, you will not be able to provide anything useful or think critically about it. In that same article, writing well is becoming a lost art. You talk about the Narnia books uh, by C.S. Lewis, which you, uh, who you already mentioned you, you are a fan of. And you talk about how in his book, the, the Narnia book, The Silver Chair, <clears throat> excuse me, The Silver Chair, he basically makes fun in, uh, of schools that promoted so-called free classrooms and teaching institutions that basically put students to some extent in charge of their own learning. So, this basically, which, which you talked about uh, a few minutes ago, that this battle between ideas about how to manage the classroom and, 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 and how to interact with the students has been going on for a long, long time because <laughs> that book was written 50 years ago, I think maybe even more. So do you think Lewis wrote about that in the silver chair because it was a problem back then. He predicted what, what's going on now or it was happening even then. I, I think he was writing about something that was happening then. 
and is still happening now. And the the fictional school that he makes fun of in the silver chair, he calls it Experiment House. And that was the skill that that was the school that Jill Jill Scrub uh, used to scrub and Jill Pohl attended. And they had a miserable experience there. And C.S. Lewis just skewers that school, pointing out that the headmaster there just let students do whatever they want. They didn't learn classical subjects anymore. And the bullies were able to get away with anything. And it's pretty clear that C.S. Lewis was not a fan of progressive education ideas. He supported a classical education. He knew that you need to have uh, uh, you have to have discipline. You have to have structure. Students need to learn uh, a lot of key basic facts uh, and, and need to and need to learn to read good quality literature. And so, uh, yes, I do think that uh, that C.S. Lewis is. Uh, is poking fun at some of the misguided ideas that progressive educators have. And as a fan of uh, of C.S. Lewis myself, as a writer and as a thinker, I think he's he's a genius. To be honest, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you think Lewis's writing can offer the world now, especially young people. I think there's so much that the writings of C.S. Lewis have to uh, to offer us today. I mean, uh, in terms of in terms of his Chronicles of Narnia series, I mean, it's it's just it's a, it's a great series of books for uh, for children to read because there's so much depth within them. And a lot of people uh, they have this idea that wow, this is really creative writing that the Chronicles of Narnia is, and it's true. It was very creative. But it, he didn't just make stuff up out of nowhere. He was basing, he made up an entire you know, world of Narnia using his knowledge of classical languages and literature and using his, his extensive knowledge of the Bible. Because uh, for those who are Christian, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you see that Lewis's Christian uh, theology and beliefs come through loud and clear. So uh, I think there's just a lot of depth within them. And uh, I frankly think that C.S. Lewis's other writings, books like Mere Christianity and The Abolition of Man, uh, The Screwtape Letters, are also uh, fantastic writings for those who want to read him write explicitly about what he believes, as opposed to implicitly in his, uh, in his fiction books. So I think his books have a lot to offer us today. I actually like the Narnia books. I like them very much, but they are not my favorite books of Lewis's. Um, I really like The Problem of Pain, mm. which is a book that I think it's a difficult book in many ways because it deals with, with basically the core you know, argument uh, of Christian apologetics and between Christian apologetics and atheists. And I don't want to get into religion and politics at all, but I mean, even for someone who's not religious uh, or interested in spirituality, I think his work can appeal to anybody who's interested in interesting debate about ideas that are actually being discussed now. Now the conversation that's going on, uh, and I don't want to generalize, but the conversation that's, that's going on now between people from different points of views and political ideologies, I think that the conversation isn't going well. It hasn't been going well for the past 
couple of years, maybe, maybe even more, I think more, I, I began to notice this friction between people who are, as you, as you describe them, progressives, and maybe people who are not progressives, there isn't really a common ground, uh, you know, as much, especially in public conversations in the media and so on. That's why I think Lewis, the writings of Lewis, I think people dismiss, a lot of people dismiss his writings because they think that because he was a Christian thinker, that if you if you don't really if you're not a christian or maybe if you don't believe in god or you aren't a spiritual person you wouldn't be interested in lewis but i don't think that's the case i think a lot of things he says and talks about for example as in the problem of, of pain which is a book that's steeped in christianity but at the same time it hasn't aged you know what he's talking about hasn't aged so do you think that you already mentioned uh, the value of reading Lewis, but do you think that even for younger people and older people, do you think that Lewis is needed now more than ever? Absolutely. And uh, with my, uh, I teach one of the courses I teach in my school, which is a public school. I teach a course uh, in called Modern Life Issues, which is an ethics course, and I use excerpts from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity to look at uh, his writings about ethics and. And again, I, it doesn't matter whether you're Christian or not. There is, uh, his, his writing is clear. It's accessible. He explains himself well. And he, he makes the simplest case for having moral absolutes. And so it's, it, his writings are a great way to, to ask the question of, are there things that are always right and always wrong? And whatever side you are on that question, his writings provide a great introduction to a particular way of thinking on it. And so, um, and there's other chapters, other excerpts that I've used to mere Christianity on other ethical issues as they come up. But I've often had students say that they can't believe that this book was actually written 70 years ago, because that is about how old that book is. And it's amazing how relevant it, it still is today. That is a rare gift as a writer, to be able to write something that is just as relevant 70 years later as it, as it is at the time you write it. Most, most people's writings do not age that well. Uh, whatever your religious or ethical views are, most people have to, have to generally acknowledge that C.S. Lewis, his work is, is timeless. And again, not many writers uh, are able to write in that way. I'll just say one final thing about, about C.S. Lewis is that I read C.S. Lewis, um, I think maybe in college for, uh, for the first time, or at least I came across his work and I wasn't really into fantasy. So the Narnia books didn't really hook me. What actually hooked me, which in a roundabout way, uh, is that I'm a big fan of G.K. Chesterton. Yeah. And uh, I was reading about G.K. Chesterton and how he interacted with other uh, writers and, 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 uh, and the writers he actually influenced while he was alive and even after he died. And I read that um, part of the reason that C.S. Lewis actually became uh, very a very religious or devout Christian uh, was reading uh, Chesterton's The Everlasting Man, which is also a very interesting book. So that's how I came, you know, in a roundabout way to, to, to the writings of, of Lewis, actually by reading Father Brown stories. So, 
again, uh, I, I just mentioned that because I want to stress the idea that a lot of these books, you know, that are 70, 80, 100 years old are actually still accessible today and are, are very relevant today. I just wish more people, you know, g gave them a go, you know, to try them out because a lot of young people now, I think that the reading level, the books are, that are being published now aimed at young people, especially teenagers, because I sample them, you know, because I'm always interested in, 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 in how the publishing business, especially fiction, is, 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 you know, what, what kind of books they are pushing. Because I think, as you mentioned, like some of Lewis's books, which are more than 70 years old, I think someone like yourself already does that. I, I, I really wish more cultural leaders and teachers would stress the idea that these books aren't for old people and they are not outdated. Absolutely. I think that they, uh, uh, that if, when you read authors like C.S. Lewis, um, you, you, you grapple with profound ideas. You, you grapple with ideas that are timeless and, uh, and that challenge your thinking. And this is really, this is the benefit of reading classic writers such as C.S. Lewis. So what are you working on now? Well, I, uh, I, 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 don't, uh, I, I, I don't have another book that's planned at the moment. I mean, I have, I've, done, I've written three books, two on education policy, and then one, uh, I, I wrote a book called The Naked Man Flees, which is about the Bible and about obscure parts of the Bible. And um, um, I still write a lot of articles for various newspapers and uh, on education policy. So, for example, the Epic Times, uh, I usually write several articles, uh, several articles a month, and uh, there's other newspapers that I'll write periodic education articles for. And so I find that's, uh, you know, that's that certainly keeps me busy, when, especially when you consider that I am a full-time high school teacher. So obviously, I don't have a lot of time to write during the day. So writing that I do tends to take place on the evenings and the weekends or during my breaks. I want to thank you very much for joining me on the show and uh, getting into this discussion about education and content knowledge and C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. Uh, thank you very much for that. And I hope you join me again on the show uh, in the near future. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed our discussion and uh, I'd be happy to do it again sometime. Things are changing so fast that two-thirds of the jobs that will exist in 15 years haven't been invented yet. Perhaps you've heard this claim before, or something similar to it. If so, then you've probably also heard that our school system is stuck in a 19th century factory model of education. Here's how this is normally explained. Schools were designed for a different era, and we need to get with the times. Lining students up in rows, making them memorize a bunch of facts, and having them read from textbooks may have been okay when the goal was to train students to be industrial age factory workers, but these things don't prepare students for the 21st century workplace. So, we hear, it is time for a transformational shift in how we educate our students. Instead of learning traditional subject-specific knowledge that can be found with a quick Google search, we need instead to focus on broader skills that can be used regardless of the subject. What are these? transferable skills? Well, the organization 21C Canada, 
a prominent advocate of so-called 21st century learning, calls them the seven C's, creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, character, culture, and computers. Isn't it nice how everything students need to learn apparently starts with the letter C? A lot of people, particularly school administrators, are eager to remake our schools into 21st century models of learning. Advocates of this approach talk a lot about inquiry learning schools, student-centered classrooms, and personalized learning environments. Often, they talk about teachers and students being co-learners. They picture an exciting buzz of learning in a school where students and teachers together explore challenging new ideas, create new things, and prepare themselves for all those jobs that haven't even been invented yet. Listen to how William Hurd Kilpatrick put it. Am I wrong in thinking that education is changing now more than ever before? Life is vastly more complex in detail, and we are far more tied up with others about us, even to our most distant neighbors. But wait a minute. Kilpatrick, a former education professor, wrote those words in 1925. Yes, you heard right. 1925. Not only that, he promoted many of the very same ideas a century ago that modern-day 21st century advocates are so excited about. Kilpatrick wanted teachers to be facilitators rather than deliverers of knowledge and information. In fact, Kilpatrick wanted to abolish school subjects entirely and instead have students work on real-world projects that would be meaningful to them. Sound familiar? And no, Kilpatrick wasn't just some obscure writer who happened to propose the same ideas that 21st century learning advocates promote today. He was actually one of the most influential education professors of the 20th century. Kilpatrick trained thousands of future teachers, many of whom went on to implement his ideas when they became school superintendents, department officials, and education professors. The reality is that 21st century learning is just another name for the failed ideas of William Hurd Kilpatrick. Unfortunately, education fads never seem to die. Rather, they just get renamed and then pushed on to yet another unsuspecting group of teachers and students. The 21st century learning movement is merely the latest example. What does it mean to grow up? Does it mean growing older or does it mean changing your perspective, your way of living and thinking? Whenever I talk about this topic with most people, what I get is the sense that they equate growing up with becoming more serious, less adventurous, at least intellectually. Less daydreaming, more sense, is basically what they mean. You might have had this conversation before, especially if you're over 25. It's time to grow up, get a job, and be responsible. I'm sure you've heard that before, if you are in, in, in that age bracket of over 25. I want to get into that statement a little bit. It's time to grow up. Well, that could mean many things. To me, growing up means having more experience, more focus, and honing in on what you really want out of life.
it could be seeking a specific job in a specific field that you love or a field that you at least like. It means trying to become wiser by seeking more information, becoming more discerning when it comes to believing what you hear. To me, growing up means gaining skills, finding more hobbies, passions, but it doesn't mean losing anything of your childhood except maybe impatience and impulsiveness. It does not mean turning your back on the things you love, including the books and movies that you fell in love with as a kid, as a teenager, and in college. Does reading Tolstoy, for example, make you a better person? Does studying the works of Sartre and Rousseau make you smarter or more compassionate? Personally, I don't think so. These are important uh, groundbreaking writers and thinkers, but a diet of classical philosophy and existential literature and books that are heavy on politics, books that are preachy, uh, books that somewhat reflect certain political ideologies of certain eras or times, if you just stick to these types of books, you are basically on a very malnutritious diet. This diet isn't good for you. It needs a little sugar, maybe a little spice. I remember reading Jane Eyre in ninth grade and being transported by its language, its characters, its mood. And ten years later, during a very difficult time in my life, I picked up a new paperback copy of Jane Eyre. Uh, I think it was a very cheap paperback edition of, of Public Domain Classics. And I remember that reading Jane Eyre during that time, during that difficult time in my life, really helped me get through many long nights. A couple of years before that, I remember dusting off a copy of Stephen King's Skeleton Crew, which is one of the earlier collections of, uh, of his short stories. And I hadn't read uh, any of Stephen King's uh, work at that time, but I occasionally bought copies of uh, paperback copies of his older books when I was coming back from school or when I saw a cheap edition somewhere because I was always, you know, attracted to, to his books and stories although I wasn't an avid reader at the time but I basically knew of Stephen King through many movies that uh, were based on his books and stories and that I fell in love with, uh, with as a kid like Silver Bullet and The Dark Half and Pet Cemetery. So I remember picking up that book, Skeleton Crew. I, I guess I was, can't remember, I guess I was 
17, 18. And I remember reading a story called The Monkey, uh, a stunner of a story. And I remember feeling for the first time in my life a delightful mixture of fun and fear. Something that I'd never felt before, especially something I hadn't felt from an experience of reading. So, is Jane Eyre important literature? Is Skeleton Crew a book for grown-ups or a book just for kids? I don't know. I don't really care, to be honest. I'm only sure of two things when it comes to reading, that there are only two types of books, good and bad, and that any book with the exception of pornographic literature, always has something valuable to offer, even if it's just taking you away from your troubles for a few minutes or a few hours. But let's go back to that statement one last time, the statement about growing up, getting a job, and being responsible. Getting a job, well, I'll leave that one alone. Being responsible, I'll say this about being responsible. As long as you're in love with something and that something makes you happy, makes you make others happy and gets you through the day, well, you are being responsible. And after a day of being responsible and productive, how about sitting in your favorite chair and reading The Wonderful Wizard of Oz or watching John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. I'd like to end this episode with a clip from one of my favorite books, The Warden by Anthony Trollope. This clip is taken from the audiobook version, read by Nick Whitley. And this version is available for free download on the LibriVox website. This clip is from chapter 15 of The Warden. And in it, Trollope makes fun of Dickens. It's a great book and uh, I hope you, uh, you find the time to check it out. And thanks for listening. And please join me again on The Dark fantastic podcast passing into the strand he saw in a bookseller's window an announcement of the first number of the almshouse so he purchased a copy and hurrying back to his lodgings proceeded to ascertain what mr popular sentiment had to say to the public on the subject which had lately occupied so much of his own attention in former times great objects were attained by great work. When evils were to be reformed, reformers set about their heavy task with grave decorum and laborious argument. An age was occupied in proving a grievance, and philosophical researches were printed in folio pages which it took a life to write and an eternity to read. We get on now with a lighter step, and quicker. 
ridicule is found to be more convincing than argument, imaginary agonies touch more than true sorrows, and monthly novels convince when learned quartos fail to do so. If the world is to be set right, the work will be done by shilling numbers. Of all such reformers, Mr. Sentiment is the most powerful. It is incredible the number of evil practices he has put down. It is to be feared he will soon lack subjects, and that when he has made the working classes comfortable and got bitter beer put into proper-sized pint bottles, there will be nothing further for him left to do. Mr. Sentiment is certainly a very powerful man, and perhaps not the less so that his good poor people are so very good, his hard rich people so very hard, and the genuinely honest so very honest. Namby-pamby in these days is not thrown away if it be introduced in the proper quarters. Divine peeresses are no longer interesting, though possessed of every virtue, but a pattern peasant or an immaculate manufacturing hero may talk as much twaddle as one of Mrs. Ratcliffe's heroines and still be listened to. Perhaps, however, Mr. Sentiment's great attraction is in his second-rate characters. You've been listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast. Ahmed Khalifa is a filmmaker and novelist. He is the writer-director of several short films and a feature, released on Netflix, and the author of a number of novels and short stories, including Beware the Stranger, available on Amazon.